Pacifica Elections. 2010.org. It is 3 o'clock. You're listening to KPFA or KPFB in Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno or online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned now. It's time for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today, today, today is Tuesday, right, the 6th of July, the 6th of July, oh God, summer, uh, my summer depression, I, <laughs> I keep forgetting that everybody else is at the beach having a nice time, folks, but for me, it's always, yes, this week is Titanic time, all hell breaking loose, yes, it's a disaster de jour, every damn day, I'm looking to see what I had today that was such fun, I know what it was, it was a bit about Christopher Hitchens, dear old Christopher Hitchens. He is, um, he's out of town. He's not coming. I had hoped, I had really hoped to talk to him because, you know, uh, <laughs> he, he's what you call, um, a misanthrope. Yes. He's, um, Oh, what is the word for that? Well, let's let's say uh, he's been known to take a drink from time to time. He does not see the world as a pretty place, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, I <laughs> I checked out the New Yorker for the 28th of June this year, and you will find a cute piece, it is cute, by Lauren Collins all about Christopher Hitchens and I wasn't going to use it because I thought he was coming to town on the 15th and we would all have a chance to have at Christopher but it seems that uh, he's not going to make it we hope that he uh, gets it together and that he will come again soon anyway that date for the 15th of the month has been cancelled folks and there will be no Christopher Hitchens, once again, you can read up on Chris in Talk of the Town, 28 June, New Yorker Magazine by Lauren Collins. And uh, <laughs> what Lauren does is she describes a scene at the 92nd Street Y in Manhattan where Salman Rushdie interviewed Christopher Hitchens, you know. She describes them, of course, as uh, men of a certain age, British, uh, you know, the witty writers of our time. 
uh, they know everything and they want everyone, each other above all, to know that they know it. Once again, I tell you about my favorite t-shirt, which I wear everywhere, called I Don't Know More Than You Don't Know. It's called Zen One-Upmanship. Anyway, Selman Rushdie and Christopher Hitchens must have been quite a show. Anyway, early in the evening uh, at this get-together at the 92nd Street Y, uh, Selman Rushdie starts in on Christopher Hitch, the book. It's a memoir, Hitch 22, published in June. Uh, Rushdie says that the book covers the big strange life of Christopher Hitchens, ranging from getting bikini waxes to trashing Mother Teresa. <laughs> These two guys have been close since the, eight, the 1980s. Uh, in London, in the midst of a Notting Hill carnival, they got to talking about Benazir Bhutto. And at that time, Hitchens put Rushdie up at his apartment in Washington, D.C. That was after the fatwa on uh, Salman Rushdie, you remember. Uh, they were out to get him because he had trashed the uh, Muslim well, he he had some unkind things to say about the prophet. And so they put out a fatwa on uh, Salman Rushdie. But that's a long time ago. Both men share an interest in arcane word play. That's the most fun part of this article they talk about. Uh, oh, God. They talk about a character in Arthur Costler's Darkness at Noon. Um, that was a play that knocked my socks off when I was a mere sophomore in college. Anyway, uh. Uh, Rushdie told the crowd that one of the things that touched him reading the book was how much of Christopher I did not know. Okay. Christopher Eric Hitchens, it's a Cornish name, was born in Portsmouth in 1949 into a family of Tories who had nothing to be Tory about. I'm sure you know that the British Tories are the conservatives. They're not Republicans, but you know, the sort of thing. Uh, anyway, uh, Hitchens' father, whom the family called the commander, was an officer in the Royal Navy. Oh, dear, so was mine. <laughs> well, mine was a doctor, so the military thing was not the big deal. But World War II, yes, everyone was a commander in, in the Navy. Anyway, his father wasn't much of a talker. One morning, Christopher Hitchens, age eight, tottered downstairs in his jammies to find the commander baking eggs in the kitchen. Hitchens asked his father if he could join him for breakfast. Bloody hell, the commander said. It'll be family prayers next. When Yvonne, Hitchens' mother, was 52, she left the commander for a poet. Uh... The poet had become a devotee of the Maharishi Mahishyogi. In 1973, Hitchens traveled to Athens to claim his mother's body from a hotel room where she and her lover had committed suicide. Hitchens told the crowd at the Y, quote, I know if she had heard my voice, it would have steadied her. Unquote. Well, now, uh, 
after that little uh, little anecdote, uh, it's hard to make much sense out of the rest of this article. It's obvious that Christopher Hitchens has more than enough reason to take a drink. Um, this article goes on to talk about his years in boarding school and blah, blah. Then, oh, at Oxford, yes. Uh, Hitchens says that at Oxford, Bill Clinton indulged in, quote, large handfuls, unquote, large handfuls of pot brownies. Yes, well, obviously, those were the fun days. Those were the fun days. Uh, and then he goes on, uh, to tell about uh, his life uh, in the intervening years at dinner after this gig at the uh, 92nd Street Y. Uh, Hitchens' agent toasts him and uses a quote, I know I shall have grown old when I no longer wake up angry. Hitchens answers, I wake up angry every day. His wife, Carol Blue, chimes in. But he also wakes up smiling like a little dolphin. His wife, his wife chimes in, right? Yeah. Anyway, they go on trading these, uh, I suppose, witticisms. Uh, I guess wisecracks, naughty remarks, yes. Rusty says, may your shadow never grow, go, grow less. Hitchens says, not, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. <laughs> Footnote here, my own favorite is, right, may your camel be always spitless. Anyway, the night winds down, and uh, we have uh, Rusty and Christopher Hitchens and uh, uh, Solomon. Yes, these folks, uh, Carol Blue, the wife, they're all drinking coffee, and Hitchens says to Rusty, I've got to go, my dear. I'll be boring if I don't. I'm one bushed hitch. They make their way outside and get into a cab. A bit of air, Carol Blue asks. Yes. A bit of air, Hitchens disappears down the sidewalk, still carrying his china coffee cup. Yes, indeed. I know these people. I know these people. <laughs> it's kind of like the old days it's still fun uh, it's still fun to be what's the word for that uh, bohemian I used to love readings uh, that was back before readings were nothing but promotional events you know all about marketing and selling your book it's still all about selling the book but uh, I don't know I just don't know I uh have spent this week once again uh, in mourning. Someone said to me last night, I said, please don't talk about the, the, the gulf, the, the terrible things that are happening in, uh, under the water down there. And I said, all right, no more. No more sea turtles. No more sea turtles. Uh, I was jabbering for my Thursday morning spot. I was just making a tape about a play I wrote years ago about a great sea turtle. I used it as a symbol for life, you know. <laughs> Back in the days 
when feminism and paganism were interchangeable in my mind. Yes, I thought that feminism was about women having souls. It was all about beauty. I was very pagan about the whole thing. Very primal, not political. Anyway, I'm still... I'm still under the weather. I'm just going to dip back down under the waves and give you a page or two of The Little Mermaid because that's all I can handle. Uh, I try not to think about what's happening underneath the sea. Uh, I'm told that the the dolphins, some of the dolphins seem to know that that's nasty stuff and they're figuring out how to uh, avoid some of it. Uh, the uh, the oil is getting well. They think it might get into Lake Pontchartrain, but never mind. No more, no more horror stories. No more of that. Uh, the sea turtles, however, they they don't seem to get it. They go right on drinking this stuff, and some of them think it's jellyfish, you know. But anyway, last time I had read to you about the Little Mermaid's desire to leave the great depths of the sea, the wonderful world uh, that we don't understand and crawl upon land and become one of us because she's got a crush on a boy. He's a prince. She saw him on a ship and uh, (laughs) she's in love. She wants to be a human being and she thinks that being a human being means that she'll have a, a, a soul, a human soul. Her grandmother says, don't be silly, it's better to live 300 years down here, you see, and be a pagan, and then go back into the, what is it, the cauldron, the depths of the sea, the foam, you become foam on the waves. I like that, that's very old stuff, yes, that's the real grail, anyway, uh, the little mermaid decides to go down and talk to the sea witch. She has now had a chance to look at the land, and she says she wants to go. She wants to go uh, meet the prince and uh, do, yes, do the thing. So down she goes to the sea witch, and the sea witch says to her, I know what you want, all right. It's very silly of you. Nevertheless, you shall have your way. You just want to be rid of your fishtail and have stumps to walk on, just like a human being, and then the prince will fall in love with you. And you'll be able to have him and an immortal soul as well. The witch laughed so loud, so horribly, all the toads and snakes fell from her breast to the ground. You've come just at the right time, said the witch. After sunrise tomorrow, I shouldn't be able to help you. Until another year, I'm going to make you a potion, and before the sun rises, you must swim with it to the land and sit on shore and drink it. Your tail will part and shrink into what humans call nice legs, but it will hurt just as if a sharp sword were passing through you. All who behold you will say you are the loveliest human child they have ever seen. You will keep your gliding way of walking. No dancer will be able to float along like you. But every step you take will be like treading on a knife, sharp enough to cause your blood to flow. Do you want to suffer all this? For then I shall help you. 
Oh, yes, said the little mermaid in a trembling voice, thinking of the prince and of having an immortal soul. Remember, said the witch, once you have taken on the shape of a human being, you will never be able to become a mermaid again. You will never be able to dive down through the water to your sisters, to your father's palace. And if you fail to win the prince's love so that he forgets his father and mother, thinks nothing but thoughts of you, and has the priest place your two hands in one another's, that you may become man and wife, and then you will, yes, the first morning, yes, after he has married another, should he marry another, you shall never have an immortal soul. Your heart will break and you will become foam on the water. Oh, said the little mermaid, she was pale as death. I want to. Then you must pay me too, said the witch. It is no small price, I ask. You have the loveliest voice of all down here at the bottom of the sea. You think you will be able to enchant him with it all right. But your voice is just what you have to give me. The best thing you possess. That's what I want for my precious potion. After all, I have to put my own blood into it, that it may become as sharp as a two-edged sword. Oh, said the little mermaid, if you take my voice, what have I got left? Your lovely figure, said the witch, your gliding walk, your eloquent eyes. You'll be able to enchant the heart of a human. Well, so you've lost courage? Come, stick out your little tongue so that I can cut it off for my payment. And then you shall have my powerful potion. Let it be so, said the little mermaid. The witch put on her cauldron in order to brew her potion. <laughs> Nothing like cleanliness, she said, as she scrubbed out the cauldron with snakes, which she tied in a knot. Then she scratched her breast and let her black blood drip in. The steam took on the strangest shapes. Enough to make anyone fear and tremble, the witch kept putting more things in, and when it was boiling well, it was just like a crocodile weeping. At last the potion was ready, and it looked like the clearest water. There you are, said the witch. She cut out the little mermaid's tongue who thus became dumb, and could neither sing nor speak. If the polyps should seize you when you walk back through my forest, said the witch, fling but a single drop of my potion over them, and their arms and fingers will burst into a thousand pieces. But the little mermaid had no need. The polyps drew back from her in fright when they saw the shining drink 
that gleamed in her hand as though it were a glittering star. Thus she soon passed through the forest, the bog, the roaring maelstroms. She could see her father's palace, where the torches had been extinguished in the big ballroom. Probably everybody was asleep now, but she didn't dare go in and see them now that she was dumb and wanted to leave them forever. It was as though her heart would have to break with grief. She stole into the garden, plucked one flower each of her sister's flower beds, blew a thousand kisses from her fingertips towards the palace, and she rose up through the dark blue sea. The sun had not yet come forth as she saw the prince's castle and mounted the splendid marble staircase. The sun... Yes, the sun had began to come forth and the moon shone beautifully clear. At this point, the little mermaid drank her burning sharp potion. It was as though a two-edged sword had passed through her delicate body. She fainted from it. She lay as though dead. Then, when the sun began to shine over the sea, she awoke, felt a searing pain. But right before her stood the handsome young prince. He fastened his jet-black eyes upon her, so that she cast her own down. Whereupon she saw that her fishtail had gone, and that she had the nicest little white legs any young girl could wish for. <laughs> but she was quite naked, and therefore wrapped herself in her thick, long tresses. The prince asked who she was and how she had come there, and she looked at him gently but sadly with her dark blue eyes. After all, she could not talk. Then he took her by the hand and led her into the castle at each step she took. It was just as the witch had warned her, as though she were treading on pointed needles and sharp knives. She endured it gladly. She rose light as a bubble at the prince's side, and he and everybody else marveled at her beautiful floating walk. She was given costly raiments of silk and muslin to wear. In the palace she was the most beautiful of them all, but she was dumb. She could neither sing nor speak. Lovely slave girls clad in silk and gold came forth, they sang for the prince and for his royal parents. One sang more beautifully than all the rest, and the prince clapped his hands and smiled at her. That made the little mermaid unhappy, for she knew she had once sung far more beautifully, she thought. Oh, I would so like him to know that I, just to be with him, have given my voice away forever and ever. The slave girls now began to dance. They danced the graceful, lovely dances to the most wonderful music, whereupon the little mermaid lifted up her beautiful white arms, 
rose on tiptoe, floated across the floor, dancing as none had ever danced before. At each movement, her loveliness became more apparent. Her eyes appealed more fervently to the heart than the singing of all the slaves. Everybody was delighted, especially the prince, who called her his little foundling. And she danced on and on, even though every time her foot touched the ground, it was as if she were treading on sharp knives. The prince said she was always to stay with him. She was given permission to sleep on a velvet cushion outside his door. He had a suit of man's clothing sewn for her, so that she could go riding with him. They rode through sweet-smelling forests. Green branches knocked her shoulders, and little birds sang in the fresh leaves. She went climbing with the prince on high mountains. Although her delicate feet bled so much the others noticed it, she made light of it. She went on with him until they saw the clouds sailing far below them, like a flock of birds setting out for foreign climes. At home in the prince's castle, while the others were all asleep, she went out to the broad marble staircase for it cooled her burning feet to stand in the cold sea water. And there she thought about the others down there in the depths. One night her sisters came. They came along together, arms linked, singing so mournfully as they swam over the water. She waved to them. They recognized her and told her how unhappy she had made them all. Every night after that they visited her. And one night far out she saw her old grandmother, who hadn't been up to the surface for so many years. She saw the sea king, his crown on his head. They stretched out their arms towards her, but they dared not come so close to land as her sisters. Day by day the prince grew fonder of her and loved her as one loves a good sweet child. As for making her his queen, the idea never occurred to him. She would have to become his wife, she knew. Otherwise, she could never have an immortal soul. And on his wedding morning, she would become foam on the sea. Are you not fondest of me, of them all, the little mermaid's eyes seemed to see when he took her in his arms and kissed her beautiful brow? Oh, yes. Yes, you are dearest to me, said the prince, for you have the kindest heart of all. You are most devoted, and you look like a young girl I once saw but probably shall never find again. I was on a ship that wrecked and the waves washed me ashore near a holy temple where several young girls were serving and the youngest of whom found me there on the shore and saved my life. I saw only her face. I saw her twice there. She is the only one I could ever love in this world. But you look like her. In fact, you almost supplant her image in my soul. She belongs to the holy temple. And that is why good fortune has sent you to me. 
never shall we part. Oh dear, thought the little mermaid, he doesn't realize that it was I who saved his life. It was I who carried him across the sea to that forest where the temple stands. And the little mermaid sighed deeply because she could not manage tears. She's not a human being yet, so she has no tears. I will wait till next time to tell you more about the little mermaid and what happens to those of us <laughs> who try to live the life we dream of and not the life that is real. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Until then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. at San Francisco's venerable Victoria Theater will tumble down a twisted rabbit hole of pop culture sights and sounds ranging from 1906 earthquake iconography to the West Coast hip-hop phenomenon known as Jerkin in Damage Control Dance Theater's production of Looking Glass featuring world fusion contemporary choreography by Sarah Beyer. This ambitious new adaptation of Lewis Carroll's Immortal Wonderland stories will run for two nights only July 9th and 10th, 2010 at 8 p.m. Seating is limited. This is a benefit for Damage Control Dance Theater and Shoebox Studios, San Francisco. Tickets are available now at www.lookingglasstickets.com. It's 3.30 and you're listening to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org.